let's remember what great salespeople know from birth. What are they trained to do? What are they paid to do? When I, as an enterprise salesperson, call on a prospect and they're not interested, the very first thing I do is I go over their head to somebody more senior and I make the pitch again. Right. In fact, I'm paid and rewarded for that. The reason I get a big check at the end of the quarter and I'm driving a Tesla is because I'm going over the heads of the people who say no. Then we on the engineering and product side are shocked, shocked, right? <laughs> to find out that when I said no to some sales team, they went over my head to the CEO. Of course they did. Yeah, of course yeah, they did. Right. They're paid to do that. Yeah, that's a good point. Right? It's not that they don't like me. I'm just in their way. Welcome to Innovation Talks. Join us weekly as we discuss with distinguished industry guests how to refine and improve corporate innovation and new product development. Hosted by Paul Heller, Sophion Chief Evangelist. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Glad you could join me again. I hope you're having a great week out there. We have a really fun guest today, Rich Miranoff. And if you don't know Rich, you will by the end of our chat here. He coaches product executives, product management teams, software organizations. He works uh, at all different levels. He's been in organizations doing the work. He's been a consultant. He focuses on product leadership, organization, uh, scaling up, tackling product-specific and company-specific issues, uh, the, the full gamut. If, if, if the word product comes to mind, Rich's name should come along. Hi, Rich. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks, Paul. Sure. Glad you could join us. Where are you joining us from? I'm in Portland, Oregon. Portland, Oregon. It's either a suburb of San Francisco or Toronto, depending <laughs> on where you are. So, <laughs> yeah. How's the weather out there? Are you guys in spring yet? Actually, uh, spring arrived a couple of days ago, so we've had six months of rain and hail and snow and everything else. Uh, spring's pretty brief here, so I'm hoping to celebrate before the weekend. Good. Get it the day in. Yeah, you bet. Well, Rich, you know, let's just start talking in generally about innovation, uh, your kind of view on it, and the value of it to the executives. I worry about the word innovation because I think it's been inflated to mean all possible things. Yeah. So let me put a couple of markers down for what I think it's not. So often when we're talking to the go-to-market side of the executive team, the word innovation simply means do the thing the last customer asked me or told me to do, right? <laughs> so, so innovation becomes a synonym for build a lot of stuff faster that someone somewhere asked for that might be cool, right? Yeah. For me, that, that's a complete failure. At the other end, you know, the, the other danger is it's not innovation unless it took 2,700 people, four years to build, uses AI and gets to the moon, right? Right. So I think of innovation as a whole series of small and big things. So in the course of a product, which is going to live a long life in many releases and have lots of customers and make people happy, we're going to have small innovations and medium-sized innovations and big innovations. And by the way, it's in the eyes of the user or the beholder. Right. So me as an executive saying something is an innovation is, I think, a complete waste of air. Ah. The real question is, do our users get excited? Does it give us more value? Do they sign up and stay longer and churn go down? Do they get value out of the thing? So innovation's got to be an external metric that says we shipped a new feature or product and a lot of people excitedly are using it to do things they couldn't do before or do the job better. 
right? So an external view of innovation, not I'm really smart and an idea popped in my head this morning in the shower. Yeah, I like that. I like that. And it's got, it's not what's written in the annual reports, right? It's just, you're getting to the real core of what innovation is. And I really like that. When you think about the role of product, the product people, let's just pick product management as an example, in that, in making innovation happen, what do they need to do? What are the challenges they're facing? I think, you know, again, if we're thinking at, at a lot of levels, let's go to the individual product manager who's got a team of engineers and maybe some designers and works on some portion of a larger product. So for that individual product manager, innovation means making their part of the product better and more responsive and happier and easier to use and adding more value. So imagine I was the product manager on the all the admin controls for some really big product. So my my little bit of the users are the people who set things and invite new folks and set up accounts and two-factor authentication and all the sort of admin stuff. For them, innovation is probably around making their admin jobs easier, right? Or adding some new capabilities, which we didn't have, which are needed for security or something. So at the team level, we've got individual product managers who are innovating at the feature or maybe even the sub-feature level. We go up a couple levels. If we're looking at the director of product or the chief product, whatever, innovation probably means thinking hard about the portfolio of products and services. Should we be end-of-lifing one set of things that aren't, isn't getting much use so that we can put our effort against a new thing, which is going to have a lot more joy and revenue and customer success. So, you know, we peel the onion. We, we, we find the right level of specificity. Sure, sure. And somewhere in there, there is a person with no resource and all the accountability <laughs> to drive, drive it forward, right? <laughs> right. We call that person a product manager. That's right. <laughs> yeah. And that's, I think, where you, uh, you help a lot of people understand this dynamic of where is the leadership of the product? Where does it need to be? Right. And, and I've never actually seen an executive team completely delegate leadership down to the product managers, right? I mean, they're always in the loop here somewhere. So I think if we key on that, when we say product managers have no authority, they only have responsibility. And so part of what we must do as product managers or product leaders is figure out how to sell the really good ideas up the chain to the folks who are going to either approve them or give us resources or give us engineering teams or get out of our way. Yeah. Right. So it's not enough to have a good idea. In fact, it's not enough to have the best idea because by the way, there's an infinite number of ideas. There's no shortage of that would be cool if, and can't we just, yeah, right. right? And it'll probably only be 10 lines of code, right? There's no shortage of that. <laughs> what, what we need to do as product folks, uh, I, and I think of it in two steps. One is we have to make some really, really hard, painful, unpleasant decisions. We're going to not do 95% of all the things people ask us to do. There's never going to be enough people and resources and talent and smarts to do even the majority of what comes in. So as product managers, we have to be willing to say these four items are more important than the 996 I left by the side of the road in the backlog. Not just that they're important to someone, but they're more important than the rest of the stack. And then we have to form some kind of logical financial argument 
because if it isn't financial, nobody else in the company cares, where we explain how that set of new feature, function, product, capability, whatever it is, is either going to add money to the top line, you know, add money to the bottom line by saving something, reducing churn, right? What's the financial outcome? What's the currency symbol at the front? So that our execs actually listen to the argument. Yeah, that usually gets them. <laughs> They'll start listening. Let's say start listening. You know, we, we've all either been or seen the product manager who walks into the executive meeting with a spreadsheet that's 16 columns and 700 rows and says, <laughs> let me walk you through my algorithm for an hour or two and show you why I think this is important, right? Complete failure. Yeah. Right? You got to have some sentence that starts with, I think this particular improvement could put two to $5 million a quarter on the top line. Now, now suddenly you have everybody's interest because that's what they care about. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. I mean, I've been in this business as well. And, you know, however you capture your backlog or your unmet needs, you know, that list gets longer and longer. If you never prune it, it could be, you know, for a product's been in the market for 20 years, you, you eventually just dump the list and start over again. Right. But, but you disappoint somebody when you don't do that. Right. Well, you know, life is like that. And, if disappointing people makes you sufficiently unhappy that you don't want to come to work, then product management is a uniquely bad job choice. If we go back and look at the incoming streams, one of the things that almost nobody looks at but turns out to be really important is to say, well, how many tickets and requests did we get today? How many executive interrupts, posts on our social channels, vote ups on our backlog thing for customers, right? When you add all them up, it usually turns out that we're somewhere between 20 and 50 times yeah. as many requests as we could ever possibly do. Not 20%, 20x. And so if, if you're not comfortable turning down to do one over 20 is 5%, right? So we know no matter what happens, we're going to walk away from, we're going to turn down 95% of all the requests that come in, good, bad, and different. If that makes you unhappy and uncomfortable, gosh, there's an awful lot of things in the world that would be more fun and probably pay better. Yeah, yeah. The biggest uh, mistake I've seen, and, and when product people realize this and they start practicing it, it helps an awful lot, is just communication, right? <sighs> Uh, yes, but. Yes, but. Yes, but. So so here, here's my general observation. When we on the product and engineering side go back to the sales and marketing side of the house, right. right? Almost everybody on the sales and marketing side of the house is paid not to think about the aggregate impact yeah. on the whole customer base. They're paid to think about the one deal they're trying to close. Okay. And when I come back and say, well, you can't have it because we have a backlog and we're agile and there's limited, right? All of that sounds like excuses. All that sounds like we just told our six-year-old that they have to eat their vegetables before they have their dessert. And it, it's in fact, completely not the answer they want. And right. so the, this whole idea that we're going to communicate why you can't have what you want, um, you know, it doesn't actually make anybody happy. So I could spend all day long explaining to every single person on my go-to-market team why they're not getting the thing they want. And all they hear is that I'm not interested or I don't care or I'm inefficient or I'm not responsive or somehow I'm going to slip the wheel and don't understand. 
the one that seems to happen the most is then they escalate it. <laughs> of course they do. Right? Of course they do. Go right over your head. And why do they do that? I think they got their deal at heart, right? They got That's, their, of course, their need. Of course. They have their need. And, and, and let's remember, because I'm a lousy salesperson. Okay. Let's remember what great salespeople know from birth. What are they trained to do? What are they paid to do? When I, as an enterprise salesperson, call on a prospect and they're not interested, the very first thing I do is I go over their head to somebody more senior and I make the pitch again. Right. In fact, I'm paid and rewarded for that. The reason I get a big check at the end of the quarter and I'm driving a Tesla is because I'm going over the heads of the people who say no. Then we on the engineering and product side are shocked, shocked, right? <laughs> to find out that when I said no to some sales team, they went over my head to the CEO. Of course they did. Yeah, of course yeah, they did. Right. They're paid to do that. Yeah, that's a good point. Right? It's not that they don't like me. I'm just in their way. I just think you have to understand that if you're in the role, right? Yeah, yeah. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just going to happen. There's nothing wrong with it. In the same way that when a sales team takes a product manager out for drinks, often product managers think this is because they like us. <laughs> yeah. And they may like us, right? Yeah, right. But they're taking, us, they're taking the product managers out for drinks because they need something, right? <laughs> and it's not bad. It's just you have to recognize what's happening instead of philosophizing about how you're important. Yeah. Well, what do you do then? I mean, if you're, if you're the head of product, you know, let's say you're, kind of a, you're above this, uh, the product manager, but you're kind of the head of the product, or, or maybe it is the product manager. What do you do? Well, I think a few things we do. One is, and, and I, I hinted at it before, I think we don't talk about tickets. We talk about money. And backing up a step, I've never met an engineering team that had any Slack or white space or free time. They don't exist. Right. Never in the history of the planet. Right. There's always <laughs> more work to do. So the idea that there's people waiting around for somebody's good idea is just wrong. Yeah. And so let's assume we had a roadmap or a plan of some kind. And we've done an awful lot of really serious, hard trade-offs and exclusive wars and horse trading. And these are the three things, important things we're going to do this quarter. First, we better have attached money to those. Okay, so we are improving our onboarding so that we can reduce our churn 15%. And that's going to put, wait for it, five to $10 million on the top line. If you don't end in, in currency in that sentence, you have nobody's attention. Now, somebody comes to me and says, well, we just got off the phone with really big customer Rogers up in Canada, right? And they would tell us that if they, if we just added five-factor authentication and teleportation <laughs> by the end of the week, they would buy it, right? <laughs> yeah. We don't have any defense unless we can start by saying, well, how much is the Rogers contract worth? 400000 a year in whatever currency you want, right? And then we get to ask the hard question, well, I'm not sure because I'm just a product manager. I don't know anything, but I think five to 10 million is bigger than 400000 So, if you if you guys as an executive team really want to cancel the thing we're in the middle of and is going to put 10 million on the top line next year in favor of a contract that's only worth 400,000 uh I work for you guys but I'm not sure that's the right answer right notice notice how we went from you can't have what you want yeah to what's in the company's best financial interest it's bigger than your deal. It's bigger than your region. I understand you might get fired if you don't close this deal, but 
there's no room at the end. There's no white space here. Yeah. There's no slack. So if we're going to do that, what's the thing we're going to sacrifice? And now we're in the exclusive or world of trade-offs and choices, which is where product lives every day. But we're externalizing it to the executive team to say, the reason we put this on the roadmap in the first place was because it was worth seven or eight digits. It's worth five to 10 million bucks. And you guys all forgot because this is some really new shiny thing that just fell from this guy. Okay. And when we're talking in the financial language of execs, they get it. When we whine about tech debt or architecture or people aren't going to be happy or we're busy, nobody respects us. They just think we're slackers. We have to speak in the language that the executive team speaks in, in order to make the case for what's good for our products. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. I, I think I think probably everybody listening to this podcast got a big grin on their face right now. Well, we they may. Really it turns it. out to be really hard to generate those numbers and get buy-in. But you have to do it. Yeah. And then and then if you present them and somebody says, I don't believe it, right? That's the next thing. That's- okay. That's fine. Okay. So let's bring the head of sales in. Yeah. And the head of sales can assign numbers here, but can't create new engineers. Okay, so we all sat around and the head of sales signed off on this being the most important revenue generator for next year. Okay, did you guys change your mind? I'm listening, right? I'm uh, I'm here for you. But if we as a group agreed that we know how we're going to generate money next year, we can't throw that plan away just because somebody got off the phone with a customer. Right. Right. Good point. Well, Rich, I've heard you you talk about a couple of different categories of waste in, in the past. I'd, I'd love for you to share your perspective on that. Sure. And, and I've been talking a lot about this lately because it seems important, certainly a, a new topic for some. And I think of something called product waste as distinct from another thing, which is engineering waste. So engineering waste is where it didn't work. The quality was bad. The user experience or design didn't land. People are struggling. Maybe it's really late or, or it's not scalable or it's not secure, right? Those are places where really engineering and design led, and we might have an engineering or design issue. Product waste is where the design and engineering team built exactly what we asked them to build. And we shipped it. And the silence from our customer base was deafening. So product waste is where we actually build the thing we intended and it's not as important to our audience as the other things we could have built. And you spent your 200,000 or 2 million or 20 million building it and that's gone, sunk costs. And we can't blame the engineers. It's not an engineering problem. So product waste for me is all about the decisions, the hard decisions of which three things we're going to do and which 997 we're going to not do And we have to make those decisions before we're deep in engineering, right? We have to say, these are the two things that I, as a product manager or a head of product, will put my job on the line for, because I believe these are going to move real metrics. Yeah. And here's my CV. If it doesn't work out, you can fire me, right? Right. So product waste ties right into the who gets to decide and is it a good idea, rather than everybody whining about engineering not being fast enough, right? Engineering is never fast enough, but it's not solved by product. 
Yeah, yeah, I like that. Engineering is going to be what it is. And yeah, there is engineering waste that the good engineering shops will drive out, right? They'll get, they'll improve their quality, those type of things. Right. The, the idea though, that a product manager is somehow going to outthink engineering and make them go faster and stand over him with a whip and make them type more. It's just wrong. Yeah. It's just wrong. So what I'd underline here is the way product management adds value is by really carefully vetting and choosing and doing discoveries so that the things we build matter to the world. That's about customer value. It's not about story points or velocity or how many people on the team. It's did we waste their time building something which wasn't as important and useful as what we could have built instead. Yeah. So that word discovery. You use that discovery, word, discovery. Yeah, discovery. Yeah. And that means, by the way, discovery doesn't mean asking our execs what they think. It means spending an awful lot of our time asking our real users, our real buyers, the people who give us money, what they think. Because they're the people who are going to continue to use it and give us money. There you go. There you go. And it's hard when you, you got so many things on your plate. Discovery seems to be the one that... You're, you're most, uh, I got a thousand things to do today. I won't do discovery. I'll do it tomorrow. Right. Right. That's fine. But, but again, if we come back to where, not everybody, but where product managers add value. There you go. Right. If we think of ourselves as the folks who have to make really hard, awkward, uncomfortable, politically challenging choices about how to spend the very, very scarce engineering we have, everything else is less important than having strong evidence-based beliefs about what our users are actually going to use and pay for. And the only place we can go get that is from our users and prospects and former users and churned customers. Everybody else, you know, is a filter, has a strong bias, um, has recency, has an agenda, has their own metric. If, if my product managers aren't spending at least an hour every single week interviewing or discovering with customers outside of sales calls, and they're not embarrassed, well, they get an immediate promotion to some other department. Yeah. Is this one of the common problems you see when you when you kind of jump in? You know, our CEO, who you, you know very well, Greg Kotikia, he said, uh, you are a smoke jumper. I thought, that is phenomenal. Describe what that is. Sure. And by the way, the, the, the term's borrowed from others from the Canadian Forest Service, right? So when there's a huge forest fire, they parachute some folks on the other side of the fire to knock down the fuel and to cut trenches and to keep the fire from spreading. They don't get to go home until they fought their way back through the fire, smoky and tired and smelly. Right? <laughs> so I've done uh, maybe 12 or 15 of these smoke jumper jobs where a software company misplaced their last head of product or forgot to have one or the last two quit, and they really don't know what's broken. And so I've parachuted in a bunch of times to steady the ship, figure out what's broken, hire my replacement, mentor the execs, work with the product managers, get it fixed, and then leave. And discovery or validation or honest, real research is the thing, right, whatever you want to call it, that is almost always underlying here. Yeah. Okay. Our CEO just got off the phone with our biggest customer who told our CEO some long story about a thing we need to build which by the way, isn't right, doesn't make sense, is misarchitected, doesn't solve the problem. It's gonna cost us a million bucks in a year. And the CEO runs down to the engineering team and says, here's our new plan. Right. And, and we build it. 
and we get somewhere between zero and one users for it. Yeah. Discovery is a common uh, a gap that I think you probably hear. Any others? What else do you see when you – are there common themes? Yeah, there's common themes. There's the there's the sort of language problem of product managers and engineers talk in ways that the go-to-market side can't hear. Mm-hmm. A complete disassociated pair of languages that we both think of as perhaps English. And so there's a lot of training to do. There's a lot of mentoring to do of the senior product folks to learn how to understand what their internal audiences actually care about, how to talk about things in ways that matter to the audience, but don't promise things we're not doing. And then maybe the third one, uh, the third one I see all the time, and it frustrates me no end. I see an awful lot of companies where the most senior person in the product management organization the chief product officer or VP has been brought in with zero product management experience. So there was somebody in business development, there was somebody in engineering. And and I think this, this goes to the idea that what product managers do is they simply move tickets. And if all you do is move tickets, well, who cares? But imagine hiring your most senior engineering VP who'd never been an engineer Imagine hiring your your chief revenue officer who's never carried a bag. Imagine hiring your chief financial officer who can't tell whether we're going to run out of money soon. There's this idea that product's not hard. And almost everywhere I go uh, where I find that that's their very first product job and they can't spell product, even if you give them all the consonants in order, is that they're really doing account management. Yeah. Or they're really doing engineering architecture. Mm. Or they're really not doing anything. Yeah. And the product managers under them are withering on the vine because they're getting no political support. They're getting no no ability to make decisions. They're getting no visibility. And the other word that I use a lot, they, they're getting no merchandising. Merchandising. That's a cool word. Tell me about that. Yeah. Okay. So what we do in products, pretty obscure and hard to see. And if there's not somebody at the top of the organization taking time almost every day to remind the rest of the company that product's done something useful, which wasn't obvious, then almost all the people in the company will correctly assume that we don't do anything useful. And when there's a problem, we can just fire all the product managers and hire a bunch of new ones because clearly they're not right. very useful. So who is the person who trumpets out to the company that we shipped a major design implementation change that gets people onboarded faster? Who announces the company that we tuned up our churn numbers and we're making a lot more money? Who's going to celebrate with the whole company that engineering improves scalability and security? Who's going to pound their chest and say, my folks just repackaged the additions that we use and we're making 40% more money than the last quarter? Somebody has to be the the cheerleader, the champion, the the mouthpiece, as every other executive is, right? You never meet a VP of sales who doesn't take the opportunity to talk about the deals they closed and the great salespeople they have, right? It's part of the job. You never meet a head of marketing who doesn't doesn't sing about what marketing's done this quarter that's led to success. And product folks are usually too humble and too polite and just don't think of it. Yeah. I love that term merchandising. It's great. Right. If you're in the supermarket, there's this end of aisle display for detergent that catches people's attention and they buy more detergent, right? Yeah. 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 I think it's something we should all be aware of and focus on. Well, that's really, that's a smoke jumper's view of 
typical problems and challenges and opportunities, I guess, if you want to and use opportunities, that word. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Rich, I, I, I cannot have a conversation with you without asking about product camp. Okay. You founded that. I did. I did. Tell us what that is. It is an awesome thing. If any listeners have not been to it, find one, go. It's really cool. And like all good things, it's a borrowed concept. Uh, and let me give you the very briefest history. So in 2006 and 2007, I was working in Silicon Valley. I have for most of my career. And they had these things called bar camp. And bar camp was a, an unstructured get together for developers and engineers. Okay. And in 2007, there were like 600 people who gathered on University Avenue in Palo Alto for bar camp and broke themselves up into dozens of little meetings to talk about engineering these stuff. Hmm. You know, the Mac OS fundamentals and how to write a print driver and write all this cool stuff. And I went and I was really lonely because I was the only product person among 600 people. And none of those sessions were for me, but everybody got to vote up their own sessions and create their own stuff. And if people showed up, you did it. And if they didn't, it's, so it's an unconference self-structure. Yeah. So I went back to a couple of my business partners in those days and I complained about it. And Luke Homan, who was one of my partners said, Hey, put up or shut up. Either you're going to throw up a, a product camp or you're going to stop complaining. <laughs> I was doing some work at Yahoo and they let us use their training facility and cafeteria over the weekend. This is 2008. And we just announced it. We threw a party. We got 175 people to show up, which was twice what I expected, right, on a Saturday. Yeah, on a Saturday, um, yeah. On a Saturday. It was free. People proposed talks, and everybody else voted them up, and we had a bunch of talks, and we met each other, and we socialized, and we talked smack about product, and, and we created a thing. Um, since then, a lot of folks around the world have picked it up. Nobody owns it. I threw three or four or five product camps down in Silicon Valley before I got tired and just went to other people's. But the idea is self-organizing. The topics people want to hear about are the ones they vote up. So by definition, people show. Um, you try to encourage new speakers. You try to encourage new points of view. In those days, we made them free. We got some, the local folks to, to put up some money for T-shirts and sandwiches. And as a vehicle for pre-social networking product management, right? So this was social networking back before. And I'm thrilled that folks all around the world have picked it up and some of them do it every once in a while. And, you know, you plant a bunch of seeds and some of them grow and most of them don't. And that's one that did. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, I've known a few people always tell me that they, they enjoyed it, you know, when they go. Yeah. They and, and what else could you need, right? Hang with a bunch of product folks, have a sandwich or a t-shirt, argue about things, social network, figure out where the jobs are. Well, it's your own, it's your own tribe, right? It's your, it's your own, own tribe. Your own That's people. it. That's exactly it. That's right. Yeah. So that was a moment and there've been a lot since and there've been a lot before, but that was a moment where we didn't have to feel so lonely. There you go. I like it. Well, Rich, we covered a lot of ground. Uh, what did we miss? You know, I wouldn't want to hang up this thing and you say, ah, oh, we should have talked about X. <laughs> I think. One thing that comes up a lot, people often reach out to me and say, I think I want to be a product manager. Mm. And I feel like it's my obligation, honestly, to argue the other side of that question for the first 10 minutes. What we do is obscure. It's hard. It's, it's emotionally taxing. There are a lot more fun, easier things to do. Most of them pay more money. So anybody who has a choice to do anything else in life that's easier <laughs> or, or more fun, yeah, I yeah. would encourage them to go do it. Um, most of us in product got there accidentally and can't really imagine doing anything else. 
so that's why we hang together. But, you know, there's a lot of other really cool things in the world. And product management is only one of them. Yeah. So we shouldn't get too ego-driven, right? None of us are the CEOs of our product. Nobody who works for me ever says that twice because the first time they get a really long talking to. We have to bring a lot of empathy to our jobs and understanding that everybody else does important things too. And that we are part of, we're an important driver of the system, but let's not get our heads too big that we can't walk through the doors of our building like everybody else. That's a great point. Great way to summarize it. But then if they say, yeah, I still want to do it. <laughs> yeah, sure. It's really hard to break into, you know, there's too many of us, there's not enough jobs, but I would always be thinking about uh, sort of firsthand social networking to get into your first product job. There you go. Well, you have a great website uh, where there's a lot of information and people should, we'll make sure we put a link to it in the show notes, Marinov.com. And it's, you've got videos on there. You've got your blog on there. You've, you've, it's, you're active on there. It's not, it's not a stagnant website. How do you want people to engage with that? Well, it's all free. There's no gate. There's, there's no, you know, fence. I'm pretty new at this. I've only been blogging since 2001. So that's 22 years of a monthly post. <laughs> yeah. People can just mine it for what they want. They can sign up for the subscription or not. They can also find it on Medium and some other places. Um, if a piece there moves you or helps you, then it made my day. That's really all it is. I'm, I'm just trying to capture the conversations that I have so many times, yeah. put them down in words. So uh, actually, the, the, the thing that's most valuable here, the, the audience I'm writing for these days is so that a, the most senior product person can forward that article onto their CEO. I love it. I love that's it. the win. Yeah. So the CPOs don't have to take the heat for what I had to say. They can agree with me, but forward the post on yeah. and say, well, here's an outsider. That's fantastic. That's a gold resource right there. Right there. That's what it's for. It's for all of us product folks who aren't being understood to forward on some piece to a person who doesn't understand and just maybe they'll get it. And if somebody wants to go further, Rich, and they want to, they, they have a need, they need to bring you in. What do they do? How do they, how do they kind of engage with you? I'm old school. There's this clever thing called email and my email address is on my contact page or you can get me through LinkedIn or any other way. Somebody wants to get me. Um, here I am. I'm a company of one. Anybody who has something to say can't be hard to let me know. There you go. I love it. <laughs> I love it. Well, Rich, it's been a fun conversation. Really appreciate you dropping in and, and sharing some of your experience with us. And, and I'm sure that, uh, like I said, there's probably a lot of smiles, a lot of people out there that can relate to so much of what you said and to give them some insight, perspective, to take your time to do that today. Very much appreciated. Thank you. It's my pleasure. And you have a great week ahead and we'll, well, let's keep in touch. Hope you all enjoyed that. That's a lot of fun. Rich is a great guy. As you now, uh, if you didn't know, now you know. And reach out to him, follow him. I can't encourage you enough to keep an eye on, on his, his website because there's a lot of stuff happening there. Take care, everybody. Have a great week. We'll talk to you next time. Bye for now. Thanks for joining us this week for Innovation Talks with Paul Heller. If you enjoyed the show, please like and subscribe on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For additional information on today's topic, check out sophion.com. 
S-O-P-H-E-O-N.com, where you will find plenty of innovation-centric content and corporate best practices. If you'd like to discuss anything with Paul or would like to get in touch with the show, email us at talks at sophion.com.